good to be back in the church building. We're thankful for you at home as well, being able to join in online as we wrap up our series in 1 Timothy. Over the past few months, we've been looking at church matters. Church matters. We've talked about things, topics concerning the church, and hopefully along the way you've realized the importance of church, that church does actually matter. It should make a difference in our lives, in the lives of every believer, and hopefully in the lives of, of those around and, uh, and who are connected to the church as well. As Paul writes to Timothy, he has charged the young pastor to bring stability to the church by correcting false teaching with sound doctrine. Being, uh, he's encouraged to be a model for the believers in Ephesus. And so throughout this series, we've looked at a variety of topics. And the topics that were uh, addressed here in the book letter of 1 Timothy to the church at Ephesus are still just as relevant to us and our society and culture here at Chapel of the Lake as well. In the first two chapters of 1 Timothy, we saw the priority of the gospel. We saw an emphasis on grace and prayer, which results in true worship. And then in the third and fourth chapters, we looked at the qualifications of godly leaders, the importance to holding on to truth, and the call to live a persistent life in pursuit of Jesus. As we walk through chapter 5, we looked at how the church is like a family, how we ought to care for one another, especially the most vulnerable among us, including our widows. And in caring for our church, we also saw that integrity matters. Integrity matters, especially when it comes to leadership, but also within the church members as a whole, which brought us to chapter 6. Two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Keith taught about contentment. We saw the warning to those who seek after wealth. And then last week, we shifted our focus to look at eternity and the things that really matter. And so this morning, we're bringing the series to an end, the letter to an end. And we're just looking at the last five verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6. And while Paul has already discussed those pitfalls of, uh, that will come the way of those who desire to be rich, he turns his attention here to those who are already rich. And he teaches us three lessons about wealth. And what I hope we'll find this morning is that wealth does not need to be our enemy. But a healthy understanding of wealth is going to be crucial for believers to live a life that is both faithful and true to the gospel. So as we dive in this morning, will you join me with a word of prayer? Dear Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for this letter that Paul writes Timothy. We're thankful that your word, your application of the word remains the same. We're looking for your word, your spirit to guide us this morning as we open up in these last few verses of this great letter. We pray these things in your name. Amen. In our first verse this morning, verse 17 of chapter 6, we find the key to a healthy perspective of wealth. 
We need to have a healthy perspective of wealth. Here's what he says in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Paul is telling us that a healthy perspective on wealth begins with a respect for the dangers it presents. Jesus himself said that it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus knew, Paul knew, I think many of us understand that when it comes to wealth, there are dangers that come along with it. Paul lists two here in our verse this morning. Simply pride and uncertainty. Paul's first command to the rich that he's telling Timothy to charge the rich in the present age is not to be haughty. Is is to be high-minded or to be conceited or to be arrogant. As people begin to accumulate wealth, it's easy to start looking down on those who are below your status. It's easy to begin to think that you are the sole reason for your success. Maybe that you deserve the finer things of life. And this type of thinking also leads to self-reliance. Because when you can get by on your own, when you have resources at your disposal, there's really little left to trust God for. There's a danger in the pride that comes with wealth. This type of pride... And self-reliance is exactly the danger that God warned Israel about as they were looking forward to entering the promised land way back in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Here's an excerpt from uh, verses 11 through 17. The God speaking through Moses says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God. Lest, when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Beware. Lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Paul's warning of this same kind of danger that comes along with pride and accumulation and wealth. This isn't something new to humanity. It's been around uh, humans probably for our entire existence. It's been around God's people since the very beginning. When wealth comes, we're tempted to trust in ourselves, to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. But Paul also warns here, not only of pride, but of the uncertainty of riches. He says that Timothy is to charge the rich not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, because they are exactly that. They're uncertain. Why are they uncertain? He knows that any gain, any riches gained in this present age are uncertain because it's this present age and everything in it that is passing away. Jesus illustrated this truth in Luke 12. He tells a familiar parable, the parable of the rich fool. 
Here's what he says in Luke chapter 12. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The rich man's hope here was in the abundance of his riches. Not God. Not God who had so generously given him the increase. If you go back through and just mark in your Bible, I've highlighted all the eyes and mys of this guy's self-thought. Well, I have nowhere to store my crops. Well, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build larger ones. I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, he's so focused on his stuff and his things and himself that he's missing the one who has provided all these things for him. And that's God. And when it came to the night that God required his life, God asked, well, Whose will these be? I think we can all see the foolishness of this man. But it should also be a sobering warning for us all as well. There's another temptation here for us specifically at Chapel of Lake in 2020. That's not necessarily in this text, but I think it's relevant to us today. There's a temptation here to dismiss these thoughts, to dismiss these warnings, because, I mean, you're not that wealthy. If you were to ask me, well, before I studied for this passage, if I was wealthy, I'd say, no, no, I'm not wealthy. I mean, I have what I need, I'm taken care of, and, but no, I wouldn't consider myself wealthy. And maybe that's you too. But I just want to take a minute to enlighten you of some things that I had to come to grips with about my own personal wealth. Especially as someone who's living in the suburbs of St. Louis in this nice little town on the lake, Lake St. Louis. There was a few years ago at the Secret Church Conference, David Platt pulled out some statistics. They're from 2017, but I figure they're not too far off. And he shared these statistics about poverty and wealth. He talked about the reality of poverty. And he said that today, 2017, there was over 1 billion people living and dying in desperate poverty. And you might ask, well, what's desperate poverty? Desperate poverty here is defined as less than $1 a day. Less than $1 a day. Who are these people? Well, there's 700 million of them in slums. 500 million of them on the verge of starvation. 93 million beggars. 200 million children 
exploited for labor. What does this kind of poverty look like? It looks like the lack of food and water. It looks like illiteracy. It looks like inadequate medical care. It looks like disease. It looks like brain damage, especially for these children who are malnourished in these super important young developmental years. Lifelong brain damage. Over one billion people living on less than one dollar a day. And beyond these in desperate poverty, there's another almost two billion others who are living on less than two dollars a day. 26,000 children today will die due to either starvation or a preventable disease. And it's so hard for me, and maybe you too, to get your head wrapped around those massive numbers of people living on less than $2 a day. Three billion people out there. And it's so hard for us because we don't know them, we don't see them, because not only are they poor, they're powerless. And it's easy To be comfortable in our affluence, as Platt says, pretending like they don't even exist. It's a hard truth. And then he talked about the reality of wealth. He's looking at World Bank statistics. saying, hey, if you have an annual income, $825 or less, you're, you're... If you have an income of $825 or more, you're richer than 37% of the world. Under $3,255, another 38% of the world. Under $10,000, that adds another 9%. Over $10,000, that adds another 16. So 25, 60, that's a lot. That's like 90-something percent. And he kept going. He said in 2017, the average annual American Christian household was around $42,000. And he said, that puts you in the top 2.5 richest people in the world. And so I said, well, what about 2020? In just American wealth in general. The median income for an average American Household is around $63,000. If you're making anywhere near there, that places that family into the top 0.17% of the richest people in the world. There's a site, it's called the Global Rich List. You can type in your number, you can see how high up the chart you are. And I'm telling you, if you're here in this room today and probably listening online, you're at the top. There is a danger when we hear about the rich or the wealthy to think about the other guy. You know, the other guy down the street with the bigger house, the more expensive car, the higher salary or better job. But if we would step back a little bit, if we would get a wider, a broader perspective on wealth, 
we would realize that if you're here this morning, if you drove a car, if you have clothes on your back, if you ate food this morning, you are wealthy. You are wealthy. And especially considering first century church standards. So when Paul tells Timothy to charge the rich to beware of these dangers, he's talking to you and me. So we shouldn't check out of the rest of the sermon and say, well, I'm not wealthy. Yes, you are. You are and I am. You're wealthy. And so that means that these dangers of pride, of trusting in things that are uncertain, like possessions and wealth, they can come at us as well. And we need to beware of those temptations. But thankfully, Paul gives us some advice How do we avoid these temptations? Well, look back at the end of verse 17. I'll read the whole thing for you. As for the rich in this present age, as in you and me, especially today, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What's the key to avoiding the pitfalls that come with wealth? It's to keep a healthy perspective. To realize that our only hope is in God. And that's all we need. If you remember just a couple weeks ago in terms of contentment. If you have clothes on your back, food to eat, we can be content. Our hope is in God. That's all we need. Just like the rich man in the parable. We can't take any of our stuff with us when we die. But there is a way to be wealthy. Paul isn't against wealth. There is a way to be wealthy and still stay faithful and true to God. We honor the giver of our wealth. We honor God who gives us everything. We realize that since our only hope is in God, that shifts our perspective from hoarding earthly possessions to finding ways to simply enjoy the things that God has given us. It's a privilege. We get to have joy in all the things that God has given us. We recognize, as James says, that every good and perfect gift comes from above. And we respond with gratitude, knowing that God gives richly. And what we'll find in the next few verses is that for the Christian, joy is actually found in giving, not possessing. So beyond having a healthy perspective, Paul moves on to teach us about healthy investments. Look with me at verse 18 and 19. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to be ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And so in this section, Paul tells us three areas that we are to invest our wealth. Where do we invest our wealth? Well, he starts by saying, do good. There's two words in the Greek. It's 
energy plus good. And I think what Paul's getting at is this idea of working hard. Go out, work, gain money, gain wealth, but do it honestly. Do it morally. Do it with integrity. Do it ethically, through honest means, with good intentions. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Do it well. Go do good for yourself. And he goes on and he says, to be rich in good works. So he moves beyond yourself, but then goes to works that point others to Jesus. That point others to the God who has blessed you. We've seen examples of this concept throughout this letter. Where Christians have been given much. And what are they supposed to do with their resources? Well, they're supposed to support their family. They're supposed to support those needy widows. Those church leaders. Any other believers in need. We're to use our resources. We're to invest our wealth to meet the needs of those around us. To accomplish God's purposes here on earth. We're putting exactly into practice what James says in chapter 2. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, well, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself. If it does not have works, is dead. Paul has been explicitly clear in multiple letters that we are not saved by good works. But he's equally clear that everyone who is saved by faith has also been saved for good deeds. That God has prepared for them to walk in. That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. We're to do good. We're to be rich in good works. But we are also to be generous and ready to share This idea of being generous, going above and beyond, looking for ways to give. Not just to the needy people around you that you might know personally, but find ways to be generous, to go over and beyond. Be generous. Be ready to share. This is that word that sometimes you hear in church circles because, you know, we got to sound fancy saying Greek, koinonia. This idea of common fellowship, that we hold all things in common, that we're ready to give to anyone in need because really we don't own anything. This is what Paul is talking about. Charge the rich of this present age to be generous, to be ready and willing to share. We see examples of this time and time again. Especially in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you have a poor Macedonian church. And what do they do? They hear about a need. They take a collection and they send it out. They were sacrificially giving. They were being generous to further the work of God. Gordon Fee summarized this idea. He said, the enjoyment of everything as God's generous gift 
leads away from high-mindedness and false security to the freedom of giving generously. Hence, true riches is found in the giving, not in the having. And so what happens? What happens when we decide that we're going to use wealth God's way, that we're going to invest in things that God wants us to invest in? Well, that brings us back to verse 19. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of, what is, of that which is truly life. When we do these things, when we do good, when we're rich in good works, when we're generous and ready to share, we're storing up eternal treasure. To put it in investment terms, Dividends are eternal. The way we use our wealth points to the future we are expecting. Consider your bank account, your checking account over the last month, over the last year. Go back through. What future are you expecting? Is it all resting in this present world? Or is it pointing towards an eternal home. Those who do good, who are rich in good works, who are generous and ready to share, are proving that they have truly taken hold of true life. That is to say, eternal life. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And something to remember is that the opposite of these truths would hold as well. That those who are rich in this world but are proud and arrogant and selfish, well, they're proving by the way they live that they do not know God, that they have not taken hold of true life. And this is where the prosperity gospel gets it so wrong, where their focus is on the blessings of today, the wealth that God might give you today. When Scripture clearly tells us the blessing that we're seeking is not of one for today. We give. Anything that we get, we're called to give. And we know it's not for here. It's for there. That's the beauty of this principle of investing our wealth. That there's a twofold result. That yes, we actually get joy by giving. We receive joy that can only come from giving. But we also receive the assurance that we are walking in the ways of God. You want to know if you're walking, following after God? Well, are you doing good? Are you rich in good works? Are you being generous and ready to share? We have the privilege as believers to experiencing a full life now, regardless of the size of our bank account. We get to reap the eternal benefits later as well.
I just wonder then, why don't we, why don't I, I won't put it on you, why don't I give more? Why is there so many people, it seems, that don't live out this concept of generous giving? And I think ultimately it comes down to the fact that we just don't trust God. We don't. In that same message that uh, Platt was giving at a secret church conference, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but he broke it down and he basically said that in any given church, there's between 5 and 25% of the people who actually give. 5 to 25% of the people that actually give. If you look at North American Christianity as a whole, right now in this decade, the average is about giving about 2.5% of your income. I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure 2.5% is not generous. In the Great Depression era, the average was 3.3 in general. In the Great Depression era, and we've only gotten worse. And I think it's because of the pride and arrogance that wealth brings. There's countless examples of a man you may have heard of, George Mueller. who's a man of faith. A man of trust in God. He made a resolution that he would never rely on a fixed salary. But over the course of his life, we'll walk through a few things here. George personally received as a result of prayer during his first year after uh, making his resolution not to rely on a fixed salary. He received a total of 151 pounds. Of this, he gave 50 pounds back to the Lord. That's about 30%. The next year, he received 195 pounds and gave back 65. The following year, he donated 110 pounds of the 267 he received. From 1836 to 1845, his income totaled 3,400 pounds of which 1,280 pounds were given back to the Lord. During the next 10 years of his life, he received 26,000 pounds, from which he donated 22,330 pounds. It's about 85% of his income. In his lifetime, George Mueller was the recipient of the equivalent of more than seven and a half million dollars. When he died, however, his entire estate consisted of only 169 pounds, nine shillings and four pennies, the equivalent of $850. Of this, over $500 of it were in furniture, books, and other personal belongings. George Mueller could rightfully conclude, I had given and God caused to be given to me again and bountifully. I'm not telling you to give 85% of your income, but what if you did? I don't know. And I'm not here to tell you how much you should give. But I am here to tell you 
what the message is to the wealthy, and that's to be generous. And how do you know if you're being generous? Well, generous goes beyond your excess. Generous is sacrificial. Generous is seen outside of yourself, not the leftovers. It's seen outside of yourself. Knowing that it's God's anyway. Paul's taught us about having a healthy perspective. Having healthy investments. Now he's going to tell us about healthy priorities. Like microphones. Verse 20 and 21. Healthy priorities. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Paul turns his attention back to Timothy. You get this pastoral heart of Paul. O Timothy, what I'm about to tell you is so important. He connects this theme of wealth and riches by pointing Timothy to the true wealth that can only be found in the gospel. He says, here's something more important than earthly treasures and wealth and possessions. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. The instruction is simple. Guard the truth. Think about what you do with your valuables. Put it in a safe. You entrust it to a care of a bank, a safety deposit box. I've got a safe in my basement. It's this idea of safekeeping. This word guard is actually a military word uh, that the Greeks used um, about posting a sentry or a watchman on duty. And so there's commentary I was reading. He explained it this way. A soldier on guard has only one duty, to stay awake. To watch over that which has been entrusted to his care. To fulfill his duty. He checks to see if doors are locked. Patrols constantly the perimeter of the area for which he is responsible. And ensures that all is well. He looks out for any enemy action. And challenges anyone who approaches. He does not allow his attention to wander. Even to things in which he might otherwise have a legitimate interest. This is how we are to guard the gospel. This deposit that was given to Timothy is the truth of the gospel. The truth that now we have that is revealed in the scriptures. We must do the same. We must guard the gospel. How do we do that? Simply by avoiding falsehoods. It says, avoid the irrelevant babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. We could go into the three different kind of categories there, but really the thing just to know is don't spend time on stuff that doesn't matter. Don't listen to those who just want to argue. Don't listen to rumors and myths and genealogy and gossip and babble and blah, 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 blah. The literal translation there. Don't spend your time on that stuff. Focus on the truth. Keep your attention here. This word avoid means turn away. Don't give time of day to someone who doesn't want to listen. Now, go talk to people. Go evangelize. Go stand up. Contend for the truth. 
But you don't need to engage with every debate, every conspiracy theory. You don't need to engage with every person on Twitter or every person on Facebook or wherever you are online. You don't need to engage with all of that because the majority of those people aren't really listening. They're just trying to stir up controversies. This, this is what Paul is talking about. They're vain, they're useless arguments. But he says this danger is real. He says this danger is real because for by pr- professing it, this false knowledge, getting taken away, some have swerved from the faith. He says if you give way to these rumors, these false teachings, these people that just want to argue and argue and argue, it's going to distract you. It's going to get you off the path, and it's happened already. There's a danger here. So what do we do? Well, how do I know if I'm going to swerve from my faith or not? I think simply, we look at our life. We look at some of these principles. Are you generous? Do you share? Are you giving? Are you doing good? Are you rich in good works? It's not a work salvation. There's no checklist here. But are you truly trusting in Christ? Are you moving toward Him? Are you walking in righteousness? If we're doing these things, we get in return assurance that, yes, I'm not perfect. No, I can't do it on my own. But I'm reliant on Christ who is in me and directing me. We remember the principle, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We guard the truth by learning it, by knowing it, and by living it. And by doing so, we get to impact the world in ways that we probably will never know. And lastly, Paul ends with four significant words. Grace be with you. You is actually plural. Could be translated, grace be with you all. Not just Timothy, but you all. You, the church. Paul was a mentor in Timothy's life. Paul didn't want Timothy to rely on Paul. Timothy, grace be with you. You're not going to do this right. You're not going to be perfect. But God, who supplies everything you need, is there for you. Rely on his grace. The church at Ephesus wasn't reliant on Timothy as much as they needed to be reliant on God's grace. This is true for you and for me. As we think about doing church, church matters, considering things like wealth, we must remember grace. It's God we need. It's God who we need to rely on. We rely on His resources. And thankfully for us, He has an unlimited supply. We trust in Him, and we will be rich. Guaranteed. We need a healthy perspective. We keep our hope on God who gives richly. We enjoy Him 
We need healthy investments. Giving reaps eternal benefits. And we must have healthy priorities. Guard the true treasure. Live it out every day. Grace be with you, he says. A fitting end for church matters. Church of Ephesus wasn't perfect. Chapel of Lake is not perfect. We have a perfect Savior. We have access to his riches. We can know his grace today. And if we rely on that grace, if we go out from this place with his grace, we will together be reaping eternal benefits from now to all eternity. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we're thankful that your word doesn't change. That there have been faithful men and women who have guarded the deposit that has been entrusted to them over the centuries. Lord, we're so thankful that we can open up your word. Lord, I pray you would help us keep our eyes and heart fixed on you. That you would help us find ways to invest our wealth, whatever that may be, that we would invest it wisely and for things that will last for eternity. Lord, help us keep our priorities straight. Help us guard the scriptures and the gospel for the valuable thing that it is. Lord, keep us away from distractions, away from falsehoods. Help us by the way we live our lives come to understand that church matters. And by being a part of a church that matters, we be able to influence more to come into these doors to experience your riches and to bring more souls into eternity. Lord, we pray these things in your name.